Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where pretty much most weeks, in fact every week, we have been fairly regular recently, we pick up a sales book and we talk about it. I think the first thing to talk about today, Mike, is a few little bits of admin for our listeners and our audience. So the first thing is, if you are a listener of IRC Book Club, get along to our Discord server. It's where the conversation keeps going after the show ends. Uh, It's a pretty good little chat room. Actually, we're starting to get some good conversation going on there now. And so you should head over there. It's a Discord group. If you're interested, drop either me or Alex Casey a note and we'll line you up with how to get into the Discord server. Next things next. Uh, Mike, I think we should talk about Book Club. And what I want to bring up with you today before we dive into Sell Different by Lee Saltz is we've been running Book Club a long time now, Mike. And it's a good show. And we have a very loyal core of listeners. We love you. Thank you for being our listeners. That notwithstanding, I felt when I started this book the other day, and I'm just going to come straight out with it. I've learned nothing. I'm not a better salesman for having read the first 80 something pages of this book. And what I'm finding is we're finding it harder and harder to find sales books that bring value to you as our listeners. Mike, you're probably not as party to this because you kind of don't get involved in scouring for books like me and Alex do. I'm finding it hard to find books that are going to bring something to the party. And so what I wanted to debate a little bit with you today, Mike, is it's very easy to say this is IRC Book Club and we cover sales books. A lot of the sales books aren't helping our salespeople. And I think there are other books outside of sales books that actually make you a better salesman than a sales book. There's that. And, and there's obviously sales books we haven't heard of. There's inevitably going to be some gems out there that we've not heard of that someone goes, listen, have you ever read this? And I go, no, send it. Send me the book. Send me a link on LinkedIn and say, have you heard of this book? Yeah. Send me some, 100%. Because I think a lot of the sales books that we cover on here, people haven't heard of, inevitably. Correct. And it's like a collective intelligence out there. You know, for all I know, there's a listener in Brazil who's got some mega sales book that we've never heard of. If it's good, let us know. Don't think we've got any listeners in Brazil, according to the stats. Well, but you get my point. There's books out there that we could cover. Of course I get your point. You know, we're sort of scraping the barrel a little bit. And at the bottom of the barrel, we found Sell Different. Yeah. And what I'm conscious of is the idea of book club is that it's infotainment. It's a, a word we must have used 20 times yesterday, me and Alex, but it is, it should be infotainment. And we're going to go through this book and I, I've got a couple of little things out of it. But honestly, if you said to me, Johnny, you can stop reading Sell Different today, I would snap your hand off. Because one of the challenges I have with book club is if I'm reading book club books, I'm not reading other books that are actually really important for me to read. So yeah, if you've got ideas for books, if you want us to cover Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, tell us. If you want us to cover 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, tell us. They're good books. They're books that make you a better salesman. And actually, I think there's a lot of books out there like that, that bring more value to you as a sales professional than a book like this, which is not great. Um, 
it's not great enough that I would feel disingenuous having Lee on the show and I'm going to drop him a note saying we're going to cancel unless something magnificent comes up in the next 80 pages in the episode next week. But there's some good stuff in it. Let's talk about it. So the book is called Sell Smarter, Outsmart, Outmaneuver and Outsell the Competition. You had me at hello with that as a byline. Yeah, I mean, when you know, you, I, I very rarely read the introduction bits. I find them quite boring. But I did read this and I thought, you know, he's great. Three points. Price is not the primary decision factor when people are making buying decisions. Two, know your audience. You know, off mic, Johnny, what are we just talking about, knowing our audience? Absolutely. It's easy to forget that. And identify your business as meaningful differentiators. Now, let's be clear. I've heard that said about a billion times before, but it is true and people don't do it enough, actually. So the book itself, you think to yourself, well, maybe I've read, maybe, maybe I've read this before. But if you haven't read that before, or didn't know it, they're very important points to stick by, I think. I was then rather hoping the book would teach me all about that, but it didn't really. But nonetheless, they are three good mantras to have. They are. So I'm on page XXI, introduction. Yeah, that's, I got that out of the introduction, yeah. Win more deals at the prices you want. Competition has never been more fierce than it is today. Well, sorry, don't agree. Uh-uh. Actually... I think for a lot of salespeople, it's never been easier. Salespeople in our market, you know, when you actually get into some of this guy's examples, he's not selling AI software. No. In our industry, I think it's never been easier to win deals. Completely agree. In the IT sector right now, it's very, very rare. I speak to a salesperson who isn't on target. Very rare. Very oh, rare. I speak to quite a few, actually. I can't remember the last time I met one that was struggling to find a job. Yeah, you don't meet many that are struggling to find a job. How many are monstering target is a separate issue, but... Yeah, can't remember last time I met one where he, he was sat at home living on his job seeker's allowance. You know, we've been there uh, 2008, 2009. Good quality guys selling their cars, taking kids out of schools. That's not what's going on right now out there. No. So, no. So he, he talks about, next page, I'm on page three. Have you ever noticed that when you visit a college or it's so it gives this example of the buying experience. And, and do you know what? I have got a note in OmniFocus that says buying ex- IRC buying experience, question mark. I think that's a good point. One thing I don't like about the book is every single paragraph seems to start with a story about some B2C experience that's clearly made up. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just like, uh, leave me alone. Give it a rest. But anyway, but you're very factual. You're a very factual, very to the point guy, and you, you would be a lot happier if he said, "Create a buying experience." If the book actually, the chapter started with, "Create a buying experience for your customers, one that they remember long term." You know, my B two C experience is I went for a golf club fitting, took a day off last Thursday. That's a buying experience. Yeah, I mean, his example here is he's using his uh, his son as an example, who's a baseball player or something. Yeah, and they- who's highly coveted, and they went with the university that gave him the best buying experience. I just summarised the chapter. I mean, you don't need to read it. Yeah, but, and he is right. You know, it, it has made me think, okay, it's little things like I've got this meeting tomorrow with this really exciting looking client to do a chief revenue officer's job in the US for an AI company. And it has made me think, okay, what's their buying experience? What, from us to them? Yeah, how slick is it? Uh, and, and actually, it's made me really question, not slick enough, nowhere near. Our buying experience at that level doesn't make people feel that they're sitting in an oak panelled office in Marleybone. And that's not necessarily our brand per se, but what they should be feeling is 
They should have had a pack of stuff. He should be looking forward to that meeting, not looking at it with an internal sign. Yeah, and more than that, it just should be, the brand should be positioned before I've even walked into the team's call. And actually, it's made me really think, oh, well, actually, Johnny, all you're really doing is pitching up and being exciting and telling them you're going to solve the problem. That's your buying experience. Whereas the really good companies do create good buying experiences. And, in, and he is right in the book. The buying experience matters. You know, it's like I say, I went for that fitting last week. You walk into the room. It's an amazing buying experience. There's pictures of famous PGA Tour golfers and European Tour golfers on the wall of the place. Everybody knows the guy's the club fitter in the north of England. Everybody goes to him. There's Wayne Rooney and there's Joey Barton and loads of Manchester City players. Everybody who's anybody goes and gets their clubs fitted here. But that's like this whole experience. Then he brings you in and he does this fitting and it's incredibly high tech and you're there for three hours. And before you know it, you've gone away and you've bought some clubs. And actually you've paid about 80 to hundred pounds over market rate that you would have paid on the internet. But what you know is he's going to fit them up perfect. But it's a very well created buying experience. Ironically, as I was reading this, I was thinking, we're not creating that kind of sweep you off your feet. Why on earth would you even think about talking to another supplier buying experience? Yeah, fair comment. And so I'm glad he mentioned it. it yes, you're right. It's irritating. I'm not interested in his kids and I'm not interested in how his kids chose a college education. But that bit, it, at this point in the book, page 10, actually, you've kind of kind of got my attention. Yep. And then I asked a question on page 10, which is, he talks about how can salespeople be authentic with buyers? Just as coach said, it has to come from the heart. Salespeople who put their wallet before the needs of their clients fail in sales. And I actually wrote in my notes here, here we go again, another anti-sales book. And I was a bit wrong, really. but it, Well, it's interesting you say that because he's clearly a salesperson, though. Yes, he is. But he's trying very hard to... Trying very hard to appeal to the new generation of non-sellers, actually, is what's happening. Yes, and that was a little bit of a warning shot for me. And then onto page two, and actually I kind of, I'm warming to the guy at this point and I'm warming to the book because he's actually talking about prospecting. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. I underlined probably the same page, I suspect. Where are you? On page, I don't know, 17. Right. Prospecting cannot be ignored, must be done religiously. You know, I completely agree. He's absolutely right. Yeah, there's a common thread with all the guys we meet who are really, really top irrespective of the level of the market in which they play, they do some kind of prospecting at some point. All of them do. Absolutely, 100%. And there's a language about it. They never go, it's a necessary evil, or... I'm paying a bit too much for that, but I do it anyway. They don't say that. I've just just got to get some clients, full stop. Yes. There's nothing about it. There's no angle. Whereas often you get this, like you say... I'm a bit expensive for being on the phone all day. And the guys that say that are on like 60K, but I talk to guys on 120. They don't say that. No, because at 120K, they know no one gives a shit. I've just got to bring home some results and it doesn't matter how I do it. Completely agree. That's it and all about it. He talks a lot, actually, about voicemail messages. What do you think of that? I thought it was quite interesting, actually. I'm going to try it. I'm doing some new business today. I'm doing some prospecting today. Going to try it. I don't expect you to return my call. I don't agree with that, actually. I, I, I do agree with quite a bit of this chapter. For the purposes of the book, though, I'm going to try it. Well, yeah, you may as well. But, you know, page 21, make sure you have phone energy when you deliver it. This is the voicemail. Yeah. Rather than coming across flat. I mean, I disagree with that, really. Yeah, okay. Because I, I, I think the way to leave a voicemail personally is 
as flat as you can and create a bit of intrigue. You know, almost borderline grumpy. Hello, this is Michael Price. Please can you return my call? Yeah, I think the whole, hi, it's Michael Price here. I'm calling from Inward and I want to talk to you about recruitment. <laughs> you know. I'm not, not, not in. No. But what's interesting is he does talk about leaving voicemails and I thought, fair enough. And then he talks about his 16-day prospecting campaign on page 22. Liked it. Yeah, I mean, I'd change it, but what I did like about it was he phoned a lot of people up. I respected it tremendously. Well, you know, Johnny, I'm working with a Gartner top-right low-code vendor at the minute. How am I working with that company? Because I called the European Managing Director. Yeah, he was on your list. He was on the list. Yeah, phoned him up. And you kept calling him, and you kept having to go at his objection until in the end, they were struggling to hire people. And he said, right, you're in. It just crumbled. But it wasn't like... uh, You know, quite often, I think, people are reverential when they're canvassing. Oh, please give me 10 minutes. They're frightened of interrupting. Yeah. Can you spare 33 seconds? What he doesn't talk enough about here is about belonging to be in the virtual room. Pricey, you should write that book on canvassing. You always threaten to write a book about canvassing. You should write that book. That book would be a good book. Yeah, baby. What's that point, isn't it? But he's too reverential when he's prospecting, I think. He's just... Oh, please return my call. No, 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 don't please return my call. You need to return my call. Something I found that's really mental is I ring a prospect, they don't answer. They use that custom text response thing on their phones. Hi, I'm busy right now or whatever. I text back and say, not urgent. They always return the call. It's mental pricey. Try it. Not urgent. And then within about an hour, you get a return call. I wish I could explain why it works. I'm sort of nervous about that. And this is completely off topic of the book, actually. But whenever we've employed people, I draw two stick men on a page. Yeah. I draw a little stick man and a big stick man. And I say to people, when you're canvassing, you're the little stick man. But you've got to think you're the big stick man. Correct. Well, you've got to think you're as big a stick man as he is. You belong there. Correct. The good canvassers act like they belong Absolutely. You belong there. This top right low-code vendor, they've been struggling with two territories. I've got three at final interview. Full stop. That's it. You belong in the room. So now they know I belong there and they will call me, but you've got to act like that before you do it if you truly believe in the service that you have. And this, leaving some happy voicemail nonsense. Forget it. I'm just never going to do that. Never. No. Well, I mean, we're, all things being equal, we'll hire somebody to do some canvassing possibly back end of this year, I think, if I look over at our business plan. And the hardest bit about developing somebody to canvas like that is giving them that belief that they are equal to the decision maker on the phone. It's either giving them the belief, or if you can find somebody weird who actually doesn't care what anybody thinks about them and doesn't seek approval, that's the same. Like Pete Boltby. Pete Boltby, Charlie Goldstone. Yeah. You know, as much as Charlie Goldstone was a car crash in lots of ways, he did not care at all, personal, private life, what people thought of him. No. Well, Pete Boltby thought they were all beneath him. He was a pompous public schoolboy. Pete, if you're listening, I still love you. It was excellent, Pete Boltby. But you were a pompous public schoolboy thing where he actually thought that they were all a bit lesser than him. And lo and behold, he was very, very good at the job. Correct. And a nice man as well. You know, you ever went out for a pint with him? Lovely fella. No, he just had that sort of posh public schoolboy pompous, I'm better than you swagger. It's interesting, actually. A mate of mine worked for a big recruiter and he said all they hired was public school guys. And I said, why was that? He said, they've just got this Teflon. Everything bounces off them. They don't care. 
thing going yes. on. Yes, it's what people pay for in their private school fees. Well, I don't think people pay private school fees for people to become salespeople. Actually, Johnny, I'm not. I don't know. Um, but they, they they pay for their kids to have that little bit of swagger. You can just sense it in them. So that's his prospecting campaign, and then gaining clarity on the clients you want. <laughs> So it's funny because Mike and I just had a conversation before the, 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 the start of the show and we're panning the book a bit, but actually we're finding some good stuff in it. We're, and we were talking before the show about a couple of clients we've both been working on where the results haven't been great. Um, we both said, I think we both need to go away and ask ourselves whether they really were ideal clients, whether they were absolutely what we would define as our target client. Well, you were dealing with one that sold maintenance. Yeah, I, I immediately went, mm, truth be told, Mike, that is not our sweet spot. Yeah, we don't deal with companies that sell maintenance. We deal with companies that sell AI and BI, and Correct. they're growing. It was January, and I my desk looked a bit quiet, and the job spec came in, and he had four cl- job specs, and some of them were international, and they're paying good money, but actually, guys selling maintenance. Exactly, yeah. And actually, it's really hard to get the salespeople to want to sell maintenance when there's jobs selling artificial intelligence software or blockchain technology. <laughs> what do you want to sell? Blockchain technology or maintenance? But I got involved with it. And actually, he's right. You know, Lee Salds would have sat at my desk and, what on earth are you doing? Is that in your target? Does that, if I gave you a picture of your ideal client, does he look like it? No. But they're very committed and I'm working with them and, and they're great to work with. But actually, no. Don't matter how great somebody is to work with. What really matters is, at the end of the game, is are you going to send them an invoice? Correct. Full stop. Everybody's got a customer where their product is right, where the customer is always going to be happy with what they've bought. There are targets for every product, every service. If you go to a restaurant, there is a certain kind of punter that restaurant wants, isn't there? Yeah. I think what happens within selling, maybe I'll put this in my book one day, but I think particularly when, you know, when you're selling and you're prospecting and doing whatever, it's a pretty hard job. And actually, if you show somebody that gives you some kindness and warmth, you get attracted to them. And then the kindness and warmth takes your mind away from, am I going to make any money here? Correct. And that doesn't matter if it's recruitment, software, whatever. Am I going to make any money? Full stop. Full stop. Yeah, you're right. That's what happens. I thought this bit, chapter four, in fairness to Lee Saltz, he's 100% right. Um, and I mean, I'll summarize the whole pages. Finding more of your best clients or making your sales life easier and more lucrative. So I'll summarise this chapter again very quickly. Basically, ask for referrals. I don't do that enough. Oh, I've got to tell you, Mike, at this point in the book, at this point in the book, I'm sat in my car on my way to my little day off last week. It was a lovely day off because I got well into this book and I had a lovely day doing something I really wanted to do. And I'm sat in the car and I'm thinking, yes, Lee, my God, you're right. I'm not asking for enough referrals. I'm not, I'm not asking for referrals. It's criminal as well, that. And I'm, I was doing the whole head slap thing. God, why have I not been doing that? And I love how he tells you to do it. If you were me, it's all very indirect and subtle. I really like that bit. Yeah, we don't ask for enough referrals. Yeah, it's later on where he loses me. But, but, but right now, that's gold. Referrals, Mike. And my point about the book is, I knew that, but sometimes you just need to read it again. Yeah, because actually, if you speak to 100 decision makers and you ask 100 times for a referral over the course of a year, and actually I'm sat here now and I'm thinking, all right, that client meeting I've got tomorrow for a chief revenue officer in America that's going to be paying about 300,000 US dollars, the fee could potentially be enormous. That's a referral. Straight up referral. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know, but is it a referral that you asked for or one that you were given? One that I was given. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm not knocking you in any way because I'm doing exactly the same. But if you'd asked for that referral, would you have got it sooner? Yeah. Because they were clearly willing to give it. Who knows? And I think about the people that I've placed last year, you know, uh, fortunately, whatever, a lot of people were very complimentary that I placed last year, wrote me recommendations and that kind of stuff. Have I asked any of those candidates who else they know is looking for a job? Nope. Nope. Yeah, you were sat on the phone the other day saying, oh, this particular client, oh, kill for some good people for it. Yeah, who have I asked? No one. And fair play to Lee Saltz. Fair play. I knew it, but I hadn't been doing it. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'm getting into that. So at this point in the book, on the M62 to Wigan, he's really got me. And then page 37, he makes a comment that I didn't like. One of the reasons why I hate the word closing, closing implies it's the end of the process. There's nothing more to be done. If you see a lead as the beginning of a relationship, you can and will have multiple sales. Top salespeople embrace what I call the business developer's mantra. And I kind of get that, but I just want to refute it. And I'm going to tell you a story. I was working with a candidate the other week. He is in his early 30s. He's on about 57K basic salary here and about 140 last year working for a reseller of a particular software solution. Very, very good guy. Five years in his last job, year on year target achievement. I had him into a couple of really cool companies. He rang me before second interviews and he said, I'm off the market. I've gone. I'm going to a company called X. And I go, go on. And he said, they've offered me 90 something K base and a load of stock options. And they've asked me to start next week. So I've resigned and only given my boss a week's notice and uh, I'm going to go for it. And he, a load of other stuff. And I went, you do realize they have closed you, don't you? And he went, what do you mean? And I said, they have made a contractual offer in such a way that you cannot look in any other direction. Good for them. Yes. I said, they've put you in a situation where you can now not go to any other second interviews. They've put you in a situation where you can now not accept the job. And they have put you in a situation where you can't even work your notice, but they've done it in such a way that you're quite happy with it. That is closing. Somebody in that business, an internal recruiter, has done a bloody great job. They have just taken him out of the equation. That's closing. Completely agree. And that is brilliant. I actually looked on LinkedIn. I wanted to know who the internal recruiter was. I thought, bloody, that's good work. Yeah. That's class, that. So I don't agree, Lee, because sometimes take the deal out of the equation. And sometimes you have to close. I hate that. I hate that anti-sales bullshit about not closing. I absolutely fucking hate it, actually. I'm with you, 100%. Fuck off. But then so are all the good guys. You know that I know the company you had the candidate out to, I bet he was gutted. And I bet he went, fair play, somebody's closed that candidate before I have. The client was gutted. And, and you know, sometimes you and I say, well, it won't do the client any harm. It'll teach him to move a bit faster next time. I didn't need to teach that client a lesson. He didn't need a lesson in, in moving fast. He was already moving fast. Yeah, excellent. But that's selling. It's taking it out of the conversation. And I, I, I can't abide this whole, oh, I don't close. I let the deal come to fruition. Yeah, well, good luck with that when the tech market collapses in the next 12 months and SAP have let 2,000 salespeople go worldwide and you're looking for a job. Completely agree. What do you make of chapter five there? I was quite excited about this chapter. I thought it'd be interesting to get his take on harnessing the power of virtual selling. 
I think a lot of it's poor, but I think some of it is very basic, but, you know, very relevant. You know, master the technology before you use it, webcam or not. What does your background look like? What does your lighting look like? You would hope in 2022 that people don't need to be told this. Yeah. But actually a lot of people do need to be told this. Yeah, I really lost my marbles at this point, page 47. I, I actually wrote, oh my God. Yeah, but a lot of people still aren't doing it. I'm still meeting. Yeah. Like clients, like really, really good people with crappy setups. And I'm thinking, all right, you're, you know, you're meeting me and, you know, and I'm trying to sell to you, but this is obviously your setup. This is obviously what you look like on a webcam. Bad lighting, poor background, whatever it is. Yeah. And in fairness to him, yeah, he is right, actually. He is. And I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you've kind of disabused me of my grumpiness about it, really. You know, it, it's for exactly the same reason that we're, we're having custom, really nice inward meeting backgrounds made. Well, let's talk about that then, because we can fall out about that on air rather than uh, uh, privately. I don't like them. Well, you've got a nice background and your background is manually on brand. You're physically on brand. You've got the business plan behind you. It's not quite visible, but it's got inward colours. It's very clear it's an inward something. You can tell what it is, yeah. You're on brand, right? Now, actually, the easiest thing to do, and people don't realise it's little things, like to be on brand, what you could do is get a custom background that is actually completely clear, but with the logo in the bottom left corner. That's on brand. Yes, I get your point on that. I agree with that, yeah. Because that is an example, and I'm Alex, who will obviously be editing this, I'm not knocking you when I say this, but Alex isn't on brand when you meet him. <laughs> but then actually, he doesn't meet any clients. So no, he's not client-facing. He's not client or candidate-facing, but he's a bit off-brand, bless him. But for when he is occasionally client-facing, because he does some work and uh, you know, and interviews some of our clients and stuff, some videos, having that template will be good for that purpose, for sure. Correct. Correct. And it's those little bits, like having a nice light. Or, you know, and he's right, you know, Dell have this terrible habit of putting the cameras for the laptops in the bottom left corner of the screen for some unknown reason. So the camera's pointing up your nose. That's pathetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're charging people like 1,800 quid for like their XPS laptops. I don't know if they've changed it subsequently, but... Well, Johnny, I'm using a desktop Mac, whatever the desktop Mac's called, but I've got a Logitech webcam because the camera on the Mac isn't just isn't good enough. 720p, rubbish, rubbish. Don't use your 720p camera. I don't know what it is, but it's sharp. The one on the Mac is terrible. And the Logitech webcam, I don't know which it was, 1,500 quid, whatever. Oh. Has it paid me back? Yeah, 100%. 100%. The one I've got is the same and it picks up at 1080p. But 1080p is different to 720. And actually knowing the difference between 720 and 1080, that matters. See, it doesn't, it doesn't. I don't know that it matters. I just knew that my previous one looked garbage and I wanted a better one. Full stop. You knew the resolution wasn't good enough. Yeah, I knew it wasn't good enough. And you don't have to be a technical whatever like you are to know that. You look at it and go, this isn't good enough. I'm not accepting it. I'm not going to do that. No, most people have got nice, oh, that, that will have popped like hell. Most people have got nice point and shoot cameras. Do you know most point and shoot cameras will operate as a webcam? Most people own GoPros. Do you know GoPros will operate as a webcam? Do you know how good a GoPro as a webcam would be because the quality and the size of the sensor? Miles better than that shit little thing on the top of your laptop. So he's right, because that's just about making an effort and wanting it to be right, isn't it? Uh, making an effort, that's exactly what it is. He should have put that. Make an effort on what you look like on a webcam. Yeah, and it, does he talk much about what, what people are wearing? No. I feel that subsequently to the pandemic, people's standards have now dropped 
to below an acceptable level, actually, with virtual selling. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I, I was always suit at home, then a white shirt. Every single client I meet, they just nobody dresses like that. So I've been out and bought, actually, like a proper 43-year-old, a very smart black jumper. Yeah, well, you, well you'll know if for client meetings, I wear a jacket and a shirt. See, I don't anymore. My clients just don't do that. Mine don't. I'm dealing with a 200 million Series C vendor. I've known her for, well, she's one of my favourite clients, as you know. I've known her for ages. Yep. Turned up on a webcam pre-Christmas in a shirt. She went, wow, you've put some effort in, Mike. <laughs> no, not really. Mine don't, but it's for me, that's my little mark of respect. And I often wear a jacket shirt or a jacket and a jumper or a jacket and a T-shirt when I'm out. That's part of my style. I don't have a style. I'm a 43-year-old man. What, what the listeners don't know is Mike takes a page out of the next catalogue and whatever the model is wearing, he orders the entire outfit. Yeah, 100%. Works a treat. But you always look coordinated, don't you, Pricey? Yeah, well, they get paid to do that. I don't. So chapter six, the critical person needed to win more deals at the prices you want. I mean, I got a bit lost in this chapter, really. I don't know whether I was a bit tired when I read it. No, it's because it's really, 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 really bad. Oh, really? Did you like it then? My issue is it's the weakest take on strategic selling I've ever read in any book. Okay. It's just, skip the chapter. The Wizard. Mm, right, sounds a bit like the fox in Holden's Power Base Selling that he wrote about 30 years ago. Fair enough. So skip the chapter. I wouldn't just, and then actually, on chapter seven, I've actually put above chapter If you're struggling to plot and map out deals, it's interesting, my wife was very upset last week because there was a deal she didn't win. I said to her, did you do a blue sheet for it? And she went, no, I didn't. But she could have done. But everybody's so used to winning deals. I'd be interested to see how many people have got complex sales on the go now where they're blue sheeting the deals. And people go, oh, I don't need to do that. It's that old school. But I'll tell you what, bet the guys that are doing it are winning deals more than you are. Well, the guy that beat your wife probably did it. She walked into my office looking gutted, saying somebody's outsold me here. I've been outsold. They've obviously done something like that, haven't they? They spotted an opportunity to pan her company as a supplier badly and took it. They just took an opportunity to find weakness and they sold on a particular weakness over a particular issue with another customer and they nailed it. Well, good for them. And she was very upset. Yeah. Um, poor Gillian. I mean, it's my birthday next month. I guess that's my birthday present out the window. I might send her a text. You'll be lucky if you get one of the leftover selection boxes from Christmas, mate. We've got loads of Christmas chocolate left. So chapter seven, best chapter I've read so far. Right. Maybe for me, that was because he's talking, the chapter is called The Myth of Closing Problems. Okay. Now, I sort of felt I had to dissect it a little bit. There's some good content in here, but um, I didn't think it was particularly well communicated. But what he is talking about is what buyers are going through from a feeling problem in their buying journey. And I think the thing I liked the most actually was his subsection on, is this an, an inconvenience or a problem? Yeah. And I thought that was fairly good, actually, because quite often, you know, we go out and look for things because something is inconvenient. But is it actually inconvenient enough for us to do something about it? Well, there are wants and there are needs, aren't there? Yeah, I sort of quite like that bit. I thought, you know, fair enough. And then he talked about the closing issue. And he's, uh, he, he's got a long, boring story, actually, about how somebody was definitely going to buy it and then they didn't because something else happened. And then he's got a follow-up email that I'm not going to read out because it's about you know, 10 pages long. And then he talks about asking vertical and horizontal questions. And again, I thought that was pretty nice, really. So what he's talking about is asking questions across the surface 
what about this? What about this? What about the other? What about the other? Then in one of those horizontal questions, he goes, actually, that's a problem, not an inconvenience. Let's drill down on that problem. And I thought, you know, fair enough, that's a good way of looking at it. I think that if you've never had any training in questioning or you've never done anything like spin or any other form of training around discovery, it's a good chapter. I think if you have, I think it's very lightweight. You'd be much better off reading Spin Selling. I agree completely. But if you were 26 and no, and you were self-taught and you've never really had much training in it, yes, it will be a light bulb moment for you, that chapter in the book. Exactly. Completely agree. That's my explanation. So that takes us to the halfway point of this book, really, Mike. Um, we'll record two shows on it. And then... Do you know what I'm thinking, actually, as you've said this is, I'm thinking don't cancel Lee Saltz. No, I'm going to get Lee on because he's going to nail us and he's going to tell us all sorts of great stuff. But I think we've got to be very honest. I think we've got to be very honest about how we feel about the book with Lee Yes, Saltz. and have an honest and robust conversation with the Because, Because in fairness, when I've read this book, one of my tasks today is to go through every client I dealt with last year that, that were really happy, every candidate, and ask them all for referrals. And actually, that's one of my tasks today. And I wouldn't have done that had I not read this book. And I've got a note in my task planner that says buying experience. Just a whole separate sub-project of what does it look, sound, feel like? Are we creating that buying experience that's congruent with our brand? I, 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 and I immediately thought, just not really. We can do better. Yeah, fair comment. So, you know, and actually the point he makes about that buying experience is a lot of it costs nothing. You don't need approval from marketing. You don't need approval from HR. You don't need approval from your boss. It's stuff you can do as an individual to create buying experience that will differentiate you. I absolutely agree. So, well, let's hope we get Lee Saltz on. Yeah, Leal Cub. He's already booked in. It's in the diary. What an interesting show this has been. And I tell you what, it shows the benefit of reading a book with someone rather than in isolation. Yeah, it does. And, and it's very early in the morning and Mike and I are a bit grumpy when we start some days. No. I'm not. I'm perfectly happy when I wake up at 5am, said Mike. I, I, well, I have. I've been on my boxing bag this morning at 6 o'clock. <laughs> my neighbours hate it. Just so <laughs> like, you know, listeners, Michael has a, a big heavy bag in his garden, which he hits hard at five o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah, I work out on it twice a week in the morning at six o'clock. Really annoys my neighbours. Uh, does it annoy your neighbours as much as me hitting golf balls into my net at 6am sometimes? Probably the same, I'd That's say. noisy. Probably the same. Bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and occasionally when I hit the ball into the net, it hits the chairs behind the net, the garden, the wicker garden chairs. That makes good noise. I'll bet. <laughs> and at that, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>